Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Choose life. This is God's plea to Israel on the eve of their entry into the promised land. Choose life. I have set before you life and death. Choose life. These are among some of the most powerful words in the Bible. And they have also become the most divisive words in America. Choose life. Half of, of America hear the, hears the word life and immediately identifies with the plight of the unborn child. The other half of America hears the word choose and zeroes in on, on the rights of pregnant women. <clears throat> we are a nation of 300 million people and we have over, over 4 million live births every year and, and we have nearly 1 million abortions. However diverse the list of ethical issues of our time, abortion is always right at the top of it. And and on the whole, the mainline church, churches like us, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, the mainline church has come to a clear position on this question. You want to know what our position is? That's why you've come today. Our position is, let's not talk about it. On, a whole, on, on the whole, <laughs> the mainline church has come to the decision to just not talk about abortion. And there are some, there are some good reasons for not talking about abortion, right? Everyone knows there are plenty of Christians who talk about nothing else but abortion. And it sometimes seems like they're... Their passion around this issue has obscured their sense of of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. You know those people. So it's, it's a natural reaction then for us other Christians to say, we want the world to see our compassion and understanding, not our 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 fanaticism and judgmentalism, right? Meanwhile, most of us have been close enough to this question 
if not ourselves, then our family or our friends. We've been close to this, so close that we're not going to be too hasty to push the buttons labeled right and wrong. Because if every abortion in America is as complex and tortured as, as the ones that I've been close to, then there's a huge amount of dis distress and silence and anguish going on behind closed doors all across our nation. A typical pro-choice advocate would say this, in an ideal world, these would be safe and reliable means of contraception. contraception. Men and women would, would share responsibility for procreative choices and, and children's well-being, and there would be no sexual violence and no abuse. Thus, saving the mother's life would be the only pretext for abortion. But this isn't the ideal world, the, the pro-choice person would say. This is not the ideal world. The damage of our flawed lives is repeatedly inflicted on the most vulnerable among us. And, and abortion is this this tragic way of protecting those most vulnerable people. And ardent pro-lifers in their relentless attention to the unborn child, pro-choice folks would say, often fail to see the unjust social relations within which unwelcome pregnancies arise. They fail to see it and, and, and so tacitly underwrite the terms of this fallen world. And you know, it's a strong argument. It's a strong argument. And, and it's a similar one to the way we justify war. After all, war is state-sanctioned killing to bring about a more just world. So in this perspective is abortion. But wait a minute, wait a minute. If pro-lifers are failing to see the unjust social relations, surely pro-choicers are failing to hear something else. A, a fetus of only a few weeks may not be a fully-fledged human being. <sighs> But, but barring an unfortunate miscarriage, its future is, is only going one way. I, I was that fetus once. You, you were too. You were that fetus once. And I'm rather glad I was allowed to come to term. I expect you feel the same way about yourself, right? I'm sure you're, you feel the same way. I'm sure those who love you feel the same way to take to take the strong pro-choice line is, is to close your ears to the cries of the never born, the wailing of lives begotten but never lived. And that's the reason, all of this, that's the reason I believe why so many Christians have decided to just not talk about abortion. Not because it's controversial not because they fear um, something judgmental, not because 
their own lives had taught them that, that the line between right and wrong is more fragile even than, than, than they once believed. But because to talk about abortion means to open our eyes to the unjust social relations in our nation and to open our ears to, to Rachel weeping for her children. And we can't bear that. But we have to talk about abortion. We have to talk about abortion. And even though we don't want to talk about it, we want to talk about it. And I know this because of the questions you submitted for, for this series, this Ask Me Anything series about abortion and also about about how exhausting it is to parse out how we are to believe and engage in, in the politics of the time in light of our Christian faith. We have to talk about abortion. And we have to because seeing injustice and hearing the cries of the innocent are at the heart of discipleship and at the heart of God. A few years ago, I, I sat down with two people who, <clears throat> for the sake of this conversation, we'll just call Jake and Jen. And they were a couple, not regularly a part of our church, but who reached out to our church. They knew of our church. They reached out for guidance from a pastor as they were going through the absolute lowest moment of their lives. Jen was, was 16 weeks pregnant. And they'd recently been told that the child that she was expecting would be so, so significantly disabled that it, it might not survive longer than a few agonizing days after the birth and maybe only even a few minutes. And this was not the first time I had been invited into this excruciating space with, with a couple or with a, a woman desperate to have children. And it wasn't the last time either. Most recently during the pandemic, a, a dear couple in our church was presented with a similar decision. The prognosis even more hopeless and the decision no less agonizing to make. And I was invited into that space to help them make sense of the decision and to grieve while I myself, for some unexplainable reason, got to carry my own baby to term. After listening to, to Jake and Jen share what the doctors had told them about how their baby might live only a few agonizing days or, or minutes and how they were processing it all, I asked them two questions. Two questions guided by, um, by kind of the expertise of one of my favorite theologians and, and pastoral mentors. I asked them two questions. First, I asked them, what's the best thing that can happen? And Jen sat with that and thought about it and chewed on it. And she said that, that I would find peace. And then I asked, what's the worst thing that can happen? And she said, 
that I might have this child and it might live terribly troubled and and hugely disfigured and that my my friends might come around once or twice and then I would be left alone with this taking a long pause I said so what you want is peace and what you fear is is being alone but may I suggest to you that what you need is the church. Jen said, oh, my dad is dead set against abortion. He thinks people who have abortions are going to hell. And my mom, she's all for women's rights, you know. She, she marched and everything. And she thinks it should be my choice. And I said, is it possible? Is it possible for you to realize that what we're talking about here is not a campaign for abortion or a campaign for women's rights? It, it's not legislation, neither is it about going to hell. Because all these people with all their certainties surrounding you on both ends of the spectrum have left you alone. Alone now with your decision. And alone in, in six months time from now when you might need all the help you can get as you wrestle with the decision that you've made. You, you don't feel like you can ask for real help and you sense, probably rightly, that real help isn't, isn't there. It's, it's perfectly understandable and acceptable that you're, you're drawn towards terminating this pregnancy. But the real problem here isn't, isn't one that, that a termination will solve. You need people who won't leave you on your own. You need a hope that sees you through the suffering, whatever it may be. You need people around you who will make your life beautiful, even when it's not happy. What you need is the church. When the conversation was over, I kind of stared into space for some time. And I couldn't, I couldn't shake this sense of uneasiness in my soul. What, what bothered me wasn't the conversation we had, but whether, whether this couple could actually find the church that they so desperately needed. I saw before me two choices. On, on the one hand was the church represented by Jen's father, right? Captivated by notions of personal assurance and, and righteous judgment. And on the other hand was the church of Jen's mother, captivated by individual freedom and, and progress through legislation. Two churches. One, one that makes the Bible its constitution 
and the other that's made the Constitution its Bible. I'll let you decide which one you think Kingstown is. Which one you, you think Kingstown often dangerously leans closer to. And, and you, if you stare at these two churches, you begin to see their similarities. Both of these churches <laughs> are desperately obsessed with the nation state. And both of these churches are desperately preoccupied with the individual. On one hand, they've, they've come to assume that America is their church and they've got to battle to win America with the weapons of campaigns and lobbying and, and, and government and legislation. And on the other hand, you, they've come to see Christianity as largely a vehicle for personal fulfillment and individual choice. So the church for both, for both has become little more than a pawn in a personal or political game. Meanwhile, both churches have failed people like Jen and Jake because they both left them alone, alone in, in this defining crisis of their lives making them feel ashamed to talk about it, making them stay silent. Jen's mother's church proudly securing their right to choose, and, but leaving them alone with the impossible and agonizing choice they're going to have to make, and, and Jen's father's church over here sternly demanding they uphold life. But when the time comes to support that life, it is nowhere to be found. These parents are alone. And what they need is the church. And this is why the, 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 the church can't just agree to say, let's not talk about it. We can't do that. Because that becomes yet another way of leaving people alone to make this choice all alone to face that life that results from that choice. Alone. What kind of church? might we need to be to become? What kind of church must we become if we are going to be people who could talk about abortion, really talk about it? Or, or like the question presented to Israel today in our scripture as they stand on the precipice of the, of the promised land, what kind of people would you need to become? Would we need to become if we are going to be those who choose life. So today I would like to make three suggestions inspired by the language of Jesus, this language that Jesus often uses when he insists on talking about the things that are difficult to talk about. Jesus often takes a law from the Torah the, the very law the Israelites would have carried with them into the promised land. Jesus would take a law from the Torah and would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, and this isn't doing away with the law, but reinterpreting the law in light of the gospel. So I would like to do this today. Using the language of Jesus, 
I'd like to do this three times. Number one, you have heard it said. You've heard it said that life, life should be flawless. Live a flawless, irreproachable life. And don't make, don't make terrible mistakes. But Jesus says to you, life isn't about never making mistakes. It's about what you do when you've made them. Life isn't about not having regrets. It's about what you turn your regrets into. Christianity isn't about effortless perfection. It's about costly forgiveness. If, if you're floating along pretending you're, you're living a flawless existence, you're living a lie and you're living in fear because one day the truth is going to bring you crashing to the ground. Come down from the lofty place right now and get in the dust where the mistakes are happening and the regrets are being felt and meet the true redemption and the painful reconciliation that the gospel is all about. Why do we have abortions? Let's not pretend that, that we as the church don't collude with that, don't do that. Why do we have abortions? Is, is, is ours a community where the unexpected, unwelcome, uh, inexplicable pregnancy is greeted with gentleness and understanding and maybe a little mischievous joy? Or do we replicate precisely the judgment and self-righteous condemnation that lead to secrets and lies and solutions to avoid public shame. Choose life, God says. Number two, you have heard it said, make enough money, get enough qualifications, invest wisely so you can always be independent. But I say to you, says Jesus, that's not the gospel. That's an insurance policy in case the gospel turns out not to be true. The gospel is bear one another's burdens. The gospel is that we would find a strength in one another we could never discover left to ourselves. Independence is a myth exposed by the threat of sickness and the threat of failure and the certainty of death. The reality of life is dependence, about working out whom and, and what we are dependent upon. The heart of life is friendship and companionship with one another and with God. Those are the foundations that survive long after the qualifications and investments and money become useless. Why do we have abortions? Because we feel ashamed. We don't feel we have the emotional support or the money or the security to meet all our commitments or give a, a child a chance in life without destroying our own. And, and let's not pretend that, that we as the church don't collude with that. 
Do, do we challenge, not just with our words, but with our lives, the unjust social reality within which many unsought pregnancies arise? Do we genuinely welcome the unexpected and untimely stranger with open arms? Choose life. And number three, you have, you have heard it said, have a perfect body, a trophy spouse, and may all your offspring be poster children. But Jesus says to you, the body that matters is my body, not yours. I know how broken you are inside, even if you keep up the tidy appearance on the outside. We're, we're all disabled. It, it's just that in some of us, it's harder for a stranger to see it. One day you'll be given a new body forever, but for now you'll find joy as much in learning to inhabit your limitations as in transcending them. Discipleship lies not in saying my body is not broken, but in finding people to whom you can truly say my body is broken for you. Why do we have abortions? One reason is that we fear that a disabled life is less than a full life. We don't trust that God will, will, will shine through the holes in our minds and in our bodies. We're, we're so concerned to abolish suffering that we would rather end life than watch a life in distress. But when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see that the body of Christ is, is a disabled body. If we're, if we're going to call ourselves the body of Christ, we have to realize that the church is a disabled body too. I have sat with couples I've sat with women where the good and right and holy decision to make is to, to, to bring rest to a pregnancy, to, to honor a life short-lived and to move forward towards choosing life in a new way in the future. But here also, we've la laid out the false laws that every day lead to others choosing abortion. The false laws of perfect bodies and material independence and flawless lives. These idols that lead the church that are ours to own. That lead the church away from becoming the forgiving companionable, disabled body of Christ. Is it even surprising then 
Is it even surprising that in the face of this smokescreen, the smokescreen of shame, that people find refuge not in the church but in the clinic? Is it even a surprise then? Can we deny that there is often more forgiveness, more companionship, more acceptance of brokenness in the clinic than in the church? Lord have mercy on us. This is why we don't talk about abortion. How? How can we demand legislation? How can we call for personal responsibility? How can we expect a sacrificial choice unless we embody the slow redemption of costly mistakes? Unless we exhibit the mutual interdependence of, general fr of generous friends? Unless we, we display the transparent grace of broken open lives until that is we become what we were saved to be the church we don't want to talk about abortion because we might have to become the church that that's the choice that matters most friends that's the life Jesus calls us, us into. Choose life. Choose God's life. Choose to become the church. I offer this to you in the name of God the Father, in the name of Christ his Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, this, this Valentine's Eve, we, we recognize that there are people here for whom this grand love affair is, is not doing the trick because they have lost love this year because they are in broken relationships because they have not been remembered this Valentine's Day by the one they long to be remembered by. Because they have not found the, the, the relationship in life that their heart longs for. Because they're just feeling super alone right now. God, we remember all those <laughs> Who, who come to you looking to experience your love because they're really quite frankly not seeing it at any other, other place. God, thank you also for leading us in choosing life and not being distracted by by individual assurance or individual freedom, not be distracted by political legislation, 
but to choose life, which means to be the church. To remember that, that no, no hard decision can be made through campaigning. It can only be made in companionship. And that people in these decisions need us. <laughs> they need the church. Or they'll be left alone. And we pray for every single lonely person right now. Those who feel like they are making decisions in life that no one else is making. And they don't know, they turn to their right and they turn to their left and they don't know who's there for them. God, over, overwhelm them with your presence and make us the church that says we are here. We are here. We are hopeful. We are here. We join with you, Jesus, in that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At the table of the Lord There is peace at the table of the Lord